Well, howdy, y'all. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. My name is Ben Fields. This is my podcast, and I'm glad you are here. So uh, a few things I want to talk about before we get into the episode. Uh, Last week's guest, Tommy Smith, he was able to hang on to his seat in the first district of Knoxville City Council. Uh, That city council election happened last Tuesday, and uh, he beat his challenger fairly handily, uh, but it was, by all accounts, uh, a tight race. And uh, Tommy texted me uh, the day after the election and simply said, it must have been the pod. Tommy, I appreciate that. That's a good one. Uh, But I'd say you did this one on your own, buddy. And congratulations. Uh, Another thing, you know, I really don't like to promote myself here or what I've got going on that much, but we have somewhat of a, a, a special thing coming up in a few weeks, and that's the 100th episode of this show. And it's November 29th is when it comes out. And we're doing something special for that episode. From what I can tell, we're doing something that I'm not sure any other podcast in the world has ever done. It should be interesting to see how uh, how all that goes, but be sure you're checking with us and hanging around uh, here in a couple weeks for the 100th episode. And uh, right now, it looks like my guest for the 100th episode is going to be a uh, going to be a, what the kids call a bit of a heavy hitter, someone that most everybody listening is probably aware of. And uh, I actually shared a post with uh, our Patreon community last week uh, that's much less cryptic about what we have planned for the 100th episode. And I'd even go as far as to say uh, I was quite explicit with the patrons about what we're doing for the 100th episode, but uh, the the patrons are sworn to secrecy. They'll never tell. But Patreon is how the most diehard listeners of the show, the scruff heads as they're called, uh, it's how they support us. And uh, in exchange uh, for their support, they get, you know, the super secret plans for stuff kind of early. And they uh, they also get merch and they get and they recommend guests for the show, too. But it's beautiful. We couldn't do it without them. And if you want to be one of those people, go to patreon.com slash South of Scruffy and check it out. My guest this week is Matthew DeBardlaven. A patron actually hooked me up with Matthew DeBardlaven. That patron was Jonathan Williams. So thanks, Jonathan. Matthew uh, puts on the Pachacucha in Knoxville. You guys know about that? I've been to a couple of those. They're really cool. I, I didn't know that he was the one who kind of orchestrated those, but he does with a, with a small team of folks. Uh, we talk about that whole thing. Uh, Matthew was a missionary in China for a while. He also curated an art gallery while he was in China. Now he's a commercial real estate broker with Fox and Fogarty, and he's a former chaplain for the Chicago Bears, ladies and gentlemen. So stay thirsty, my friends, because Matthew may be the most interesting man in the world, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Matthew DeBardlaben. We're doing the podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> Matthew DeBardlaven. Did I say that right? You did. You said it very well, actually. <laughs> it's just like it's spelled. It is exactly like it's spelled. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you shouldn't be able to really mess it up. Well, it's got 12 letters, so it it's hard to approach. Well, uh, where's it come from? Um, so it is a German name with a French prefix. So originally, it was von Bardleben, mm-hmm. um, and it was two Hessian brothers who fought in the Colonial War. Uh, for the British against the Americans, and uh, they decided to stay. They liked America, and so instead of going back to Prussia, they dropped the Vaughn to kind of hide the fact that they were Hessian soldiers and became D. 
So. Sounds French. Yep. Hiding, hiding under the, the, the French guys. Exactly. I love it. How, uh, where's your where's your family from like your parents and all that um well my, my mother's from seattle my father's from georgia okay um, but we grew up in miami florida so they moved there in 1975 um i was two and a half years old okay and so i grew up in miami florida and that's still their home now really mm-hmm. you like it down there um i love visiting it's yeah. a wonderful <laughs> spot to visit so I, I only I've been there before a, a couple times, but I've flown through there, going to South America a couple times, and it feels very international. It feels very Latin. It, um, it is entirely Latin. Um, it's, it's great. Awesome. It, it's awesome to go back and just experience a whole different culture every yeah. time I go home without needing your passport. Exactly. It's super cool. Do you have brothers and sisters growing up? Um, I have a twin sister. No way. Uh, older sister, younger brother. Okay, cool. What were you into growing up? Were you, were you a sports guy? Um, I was the best football player in Miami-Dade County until I was 12 years old. I was really good at it. Um, what happened? So, Injury? Uh, Puberty? C- concussions. Oh, really? So, yep. Imagine and, and, that. And everybody got bigger and stronger. How did you stop growing? I stopped growing. Oh, man. So, Bummer. But, but I loved playing it. Yeah. Well, how'd you end up here? How'd you end up in Knoxville? I feel like you're such an advocate for um, what we got going on, and it seems like you got it in wow. your heart somewhere. Um, I love East Tennessee. I um, I ended up in East Tennessee because of a failed marriage. Because uh, of a failed marriage? A failed marriage. Oh, so, Well, we'll uh, take you. I, I moved here uh, because of a failed marriage. and Was it failed before you moved? No, or? no. It's why I moved, and then the marriage failed. Okay. And then gotcha. I liked it so much, I decided to stay. Yeah. Put so, down some roots. Absolutely. How long um, ago was that? That was 2011 uh, that right. I moved here and um, decided to stay. So, dude, you're like the, uh, uh, the 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 Great Gatsby of of uh, Knoxville. Like I hear all these things. Like uh, he is the chaplain of the Chicago Bears. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Really? <laughs> yeah. 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 Like he's uh, was were you the at Blue In? What was your t- title? Uh, at Blue In, I was the first hired employee, and I was the director of farming operations. Okay. So I taught uh, tobacco farmers how to grow hemp, uh, and then I was in charge of international partnerships because I spent so much time overseas previously. Okay, uh, it just fit. Wow. So did you said at, when we talked a couple of days ago, you told me that you had a background in in on a family farm. Was that the was that the marriage? That was the marriage. Yeah. Okay. So, so you came here to work the farm? Um I had another full-time job but okay. work, but work the farm and um had 200 chickens that were layers. 200 uh, laying chickens? Yep, out on wow. pasture and then uh did brooders. Uh, actually got to harvest 150 birds with my sons over three mornings before going into work every day. <laughs> um, so it was a wonderful experience. What was your uh, what was your day job when you were working um, the farm or when you started the farm? So the official word is contract furnishings, uh, but basically I worked with uh, interior designers and architects to provide the inside of buildings. Okay. Um, so that's commercial type stuff. Commercial type stuff. That's super cool. Did you ever work with um, uh, Olgren over at Heuristic or anything um, like that? I did work with Eric at Heuristic, yes. Did you? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. John we, Phillips was here, you know, I don't know, six months ago or so, and he was telling me that he had been there too, I believe. Okay. I think that's right. But it, it seems like a, a bunch of cool makers end up hanging out with uh, with Eric over there. Absolutely. Eric is uh, a wonderful person. Um and I enjoyed, we uh, actually got to put like uh, 200 glass marker boards up in, um, it was uh, Johnson City. Um, it was a project we were on together and he did all the carpentry around the boards that I provided. So, so like uh, whiteboard stuff? Yeah, but all made out of glass, very fancy stuff. 
at Walter State. So, Ooh, that place is kind of a sleeper. Walter is, State. It is a sleeper, but they've they've got some big new buildings. So. Do they? Mm -hmm. They've got like a culinary school, I think, and then um, it's supposed to be pretty good. And then what's that? Um, isn't that performing arts theater there too? It is. Yeah, I've not been, but I haven't it sounds either. wonderful. Yeah, I see all kinds of billboards for it mm -hmm. and all that. So, so contract furnishings. Okay. Was that on your own? No, no. I was working for um, a company called Synergy Business Environments. So okay. it was a guy that I went to high school with who owns the business. Okay. And uh, did that for 11 years. And uh, it's part of what brought me to Knoxville too, is managing that office. Yeah. Um, you already strike me as the kind of guy who who has lived like 10 different lives and been really good at all 10 of them. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed them. I'm not always on to move on from each one, but sometimes it's what happens. Yeah. So do you go to college? I did. I, um, I have a master, I'm sorry. I studied Chinese history and philosophy at the university of Alabama. Okay. And that was my bachelor of arts. And then I have a master's in divinity okay. from a school called Trinity up in Chicago. Okay. Did you ever do the, uh, let's see. So Chinese and then, and then a master's of divinity. Mm -hmm. So was that like you wanted to be a clergyman or, uh, wanted to be a, a uh, priest or what? <laughs> I did. I was I was a clergyman of a type for a time. So yeah. I um, was actually the Protestant chaplain at the University of Washington uh, with an organization out there in Seattle. And then um, spent time originally going to China as a missionary, and that didn't fit for me so much. And so I uh, stayed in China, but changed what I was doing. So. Well, you, you stayed in China like for a couple of weeks or like? Uh, six years. Six years. <laughs> six years. So um, ended up opening an art gallery with a performance space. Um, oh my goodness! In a wonderful place in Shanghai, China. Were you doing like Western type stuff, or um, was it no, local? No, what was flavor? awesome? So it was all Chinese artists. Okay. Um, and we worked with four materials: glass, metal, ceramic, and wood. Okay. So it was all three dimensional art. And uh, what was awesome is that, besides glass, those other materials are really old in Chinese culture. They've been there a long time. Ah. But the artists had very modern interpretations, and so when someone from the street would walk in, they would see a ceramic and be like, oh, I understand ceramics. I mean, this is China, but then what is this ceramic? And mm. it was uh, it was just so modern to them. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. So so glass, do you mean like blown glass or? Uh, uh, they did cast glass. So okay. it was, what's the difference? Um, so so blown glass is much more active and you're, you're blowing into and and working the glass, uh, cast glass, you actually create a mold. Okay. And you put that mold into a kiln. Gotcha. And then what's fun, the artists tell me, is that they really don't know what the heat's going to do to the glass. Oh. So to the colors they put in there. They have an idea because they've designed a thing, but they really don't know until it comes out of the kiln hours and hours later what it's going to be. Ooh, that sounds fun. Mm -hmm. That, that I, I, That's my kind of art, one that you can kind of do all the things you know you think are right and then be completely surprised and maybe maybe – Hit the jackpot. Yeah. Who knows? Yep. You yep. never know. Or start over again. Yeah. So, so did you go from straight from Miami to uh, Alabama? I did. Really? Which, which was culture shock. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. What was the reason for, for going to Tuscaloosa from, from Miami? Um, I wanted to get out of the state of Florida. Miami is very different to the rest of Florida. Sure. And so I knew I wanted to get out of the state of Florida. My dad being from Georgia, I thought somewhere in the Southeast would be a good experience. Gotcha. And so I was drawn to Alabama. And I actually... I started it as a communications uh, undeclared major because I, I thought about journalism, mm. but I couldn't get into any classes. They were all full. 
Um, and when I was 19, I made it my first trip to China and I came back and I changed my major to Chinese history and philosophy mm. and realized there were two of us at the university that had that major. I was going to ask, did you, you make know, that major up? Did they yeah, let you make it up? No, there, were, there were two of us. So we got a okay. lot of attention from our professor. Oh, I bet great. you got some good instruction yep. at the University of Alabama. Yeah. What was your dad into? Uh, my in dad, Miami. Uh, so he moved there in 1975 to be the chaplain uh, for the University of Miami sports teams. Okay. So if you think about uh, Miami football in the 80s, he was the chaplain for uh, uh, Snellenberger and then Jimmy Johnson and all the craziness that went through there, and that, as well as the chaplain for the Miami Heat. Oh, uh, wow. So. And they didn't have a baseball team yet, did they? Uh, they did not have a professional baseball team. So right. you, had, you had the University of Miami baseball team so your dad was a chaplain for for the heat mm -hmm. uh, during the winter and then uh during the rest of the year yep. uh working working with the dolphins uh not with the dolphins with the miami hurricanes oh the hurricanes yeah so. okay oh you said jimmy johnson okay uh jimmy johnson was uh, a coach for the hurricanes before the he went before he went to the cowboys yeah so. i forgot about that yep. okay That's, so so you followed in dad's footsteps a little bit i, I, I did yeah <laughs> So it was the family business. I tried to, so yeah. That's so. that's funny. What about your what about your siblings? Were they into the kind of the same type stuff? Uh, so my twin sister is an interior designer, okay. which is that's interesting that I got into the field. Yeah, you know, similar uh, that she had been to. Uh, my older sister's a caretaker uh, for people with disabilities, and then awesome. my younger brother is a violist. And, really? Uh, very talented musician. Is he in a symphony somewhere? Uh, he's not in a symphony. He teaches at a school right now and does private lessons okay. uh, down in Miami. The viola, which one is that? That's the big violin, right? It's the big violin. It's but kinda, it's smaller it's, than a cello? It's like the alto. If okay. you think about the voices, if the yeah. violin is a soprano, it's the alto. Okay. That's nice, so, man. Yeah. No, he's very talented. Um, I actually had a little off the subject. I had a, he decided to try to get into um, bluegrass style of music, like... So he was trained very formally and so very mm. stiff. And so we went to um, the Bluegrass Inn in Nashville when I was living there. And um, he sat down like at a session where musicians play and they look, they nodded each other and give every, yeah. everybody a turn and they gave him a turn and they didn't look at him again because he was so stiff. Really? Because he's just, that's how he's trained. Mm -hmm. So, But he's grown a lot since then in his ability to, to play uh, more Americana style. Hey, you, you you don't hear about the viola much in uh, bluegrass music. You don't, no. Not as much as the violin. Yep. And then I guess they, they kind of skip the cello too, don't they? Uh, I think you see the cello a little more often. A little more? Yeah. I've seen some people do some really out there stuff with the cello before. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a good one too. It's an amazing instrument. I think that um, Bach has written a series of... I forget what you call them, but a, a series of uh, works for cello, and they are fantastic. Really? Mm-hmm. So, so then we're at Alabama, and then you said it, you, you ended up at Seattle at some point. Yeah. But so, you went to China your in your, what, your freshman or sophomore year, you said? Um, I Actually, so I went to China my sophomore year and then spent three summers there while, oh, okay. while in university. Okay. Um, and then decided to get married four days after college and moved to Seattle, Washington. Okay. Um, so me and this young, wonderful woman move out to Seattle and, uh, did you meet her in college or did you we, meet her in China? We met in college. She's from, okay. she's half of Wyoming, Tennessee. She's from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So, or Franklin. Gotcha. And then you guys moved to Seattle. You're still doing the, you're, you're still, uh, are you one foot in China at this point? And then you're like, ah, maybe divinity school is the way to go too. Uh, I wasn't quite to the divinity school yet, but I've still foot in China and, okay. uh, 
um, and then went to divinity school after that in Chicago. Gotcha. So did you did you uh, did you take kids with you to to China? You said you were oh, there absolutely. For, for six years. You yeah, had... it, was, it was huge and formative in their lives. So the the six years was actually two different periods. So okay. we were there for two years and then four years. Okay. With divinity school plugged in between. Uh huh. So we took uh, my oldest son Cannon, who's now twenty four, to. Oh, from from Seattle to China when he was 15 months old. So okay. he spent basically from, you know, 15 months till he was three and a half um, wow. in China. Then we moved back to the States uh, for three years so I could go to divinity school. And, and you guys and, lived in Chicago? Uh, just north of Chicago, okay. yeah. Cool. Um, Deerfield is where the Bears are based. Okay. And so um, we lived there. And then when we moved back to China, we have three at that point. Um, well, one that was two months old, uh, a three-year-old, and then my son at that other canon at that point was six years old. So oh they spent uh, another four formative years living in China. What did you know Mandarin from from undergrad? Um, I Chinese I did, but um, I don't think you really learn the language till your feet are on the ground. Yeah, dealing with people. So I I had a background in it, but um, but it was really running the art gallery and working with Chinese artists where I learned to speak Chinese. Okay. So, so was the art gallery the first stint out there? No, the first stint was me trying to be a Christian missionary, okay. um, which is not legal in China. Ah. And so we were like under a radar of sorts, but it was an experience that just really didn't fit with me. Really? And, and that's why I decided to go to divinity school and then go back and open an art gallery. Um, why, why, why didn't it feel right? Was it pushy or did you feel like it was too, uh, like it was too clandestine or? Um, no. Well, all those things. I, one, I do feel like it was pushy or it was trying to be pushy, mm-hmm. but ultimately what I decided was I was learning more from the Chinese than they were learning from me. Mm. And uh, So who are you to pretend yeah. like you know anything? So it, yeah. it, it felt better for, much better for me to be a learner um, than mm. a teacher. Gotcha. So, and, and so you said, I, I clearly don't, I clearly don't know what I, what I think I know. I need mm-hmm. to go really put my money where my mouth is? Yep. Is that what you're feeling, yep. what you're yeah. going through your head? Yeah. Well, one story, like, so I, um, this, this kind of capitalizes it in a story. I was, um, I'd been fishing because growing up in Miami, I went fishing before a trip to China. And I was telling a Chinese friend how I, how proud I was. I had caught this fish and we cleaned the fish on the boat. And then we threw the bones and the tail and the head back in the water. And my friend looked at me appalled. Yeah. And like he that's said, the best part. How wasteful, <laughs> how opulent. And then he told me what they do with the whole fish. Yeah. And I realized I knew nothing about fish. <laughs> Apparently about anything. About yeah. anything. Yeah. So, yep. Oh man. Okay, so so you you tied your your trip back to Chicago to the Bears somehow. Mm-hmm. So you were going to school at, at the same time. I was headed to school there, and my father, who you know had been a chaplain, was he set up the chaplaincy program at the Chicago Bears. So okay. they they brought me in for an interview. Uh, I was thirty years old, and okay. they said you're hired. Really? So, Did they? And they didn't have a chaplain before that. Uh, the chaplain before that was leaving. Okay, and so there was a an opening, and um, so I interviewed for it and went what so. does the what does the uh, uh chaplain of a national football league team uh, uh do on so a day-to-day it, it, basis it's pretty awesome so the um the national football league basically understands they play on sundays mm-hmm. and a lot of your players are religious or spiritual and you have two main denominations you have a protestant and you have a catholic so there was a catholic priest and i was the protestant okay. minister um i led uh bible studies for the coaches and the players 
Uh, and then every Sunday night bef- or Saturday night before they play on Sunday, did a chapel for the team. Um, and then on Sunday during the game on the sideline, and uh, my role was to run pictures. It's changed now, but they take every NFL team takes two pictures before every snap or one before the snap, one after the snap to see what the lines are doing. Uh-huh. And so my job was to run back and forth and grab those pictures, take them to the coordinators and let them look at the pictures. So you were doing um, more than just preaching the good word. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're helping the team too. Absolutely. You're trying like, to help them win. You're so. like the GA. Yeah. They're like a graduate assistant. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh man. So so you're you're leading these uh like Bible studies the night before, uh like on Saturday nights? Yeah. The chapel service. The yeah. chapel service. And how what's turnout like? Okay, so how big is a how big is a uh NFL team? Seventy uh, players? No, no. I think closer to mm, 55 or 56 player, maybe 54. Okay. How many showed up? Some there, uh, like 25 to 30. Oh, wow. That's so, great. Yeah, they have they have team meetings. And so, um, you know, they like special teams has a meeting and the defense backs have a meeting and the running backs have a meeting. And then they throw chapel in the middle of that. Okay. And, you know, players can decide to come or not. They can, you know, go back to the room and do something else. But, you know, the NFL is pretty serious. So a lot of folks are thinking about tomorrow and yeah a chapel service is a nice place for them to go and get some solace did uh was it was it uh lovey smith era that you were there was no okay. no it so was, you missed uh, the, uh, the super bowl yeah it was, it was dick Geron. okay uh my so 2000 2003 my last season we made the playoffs um and got the bye and then the eagles spanked us in the first game of the playoffs. But you got so, to go to all the you, – you were on the road with the team, right? I was on the road, so which was an amazing time. Like, it, um, you you don't go through any security. The bus drives you onto the runway. What do you – oh, at the airport? Yeah, so you park okay. in the special parking lot. The bus drives you onto the runway. You climb onto the plane, and because you're doing this every week, the the flight attendant crew knows what you want, and so they bring me my black coffee immediately and, you know, say, hey, it's great to see you again, and – you get on a plane and land, and then when you land, they hand you a key to a hotel room and a schedule, and you go do it. Is it uh, the same plane every week? Same, uh, the Bears so, have a private so, plane, so or do the they Bear, charter no, one? They chartered United Airlines. Okay. So um, same crew every week. Okay. Same. Okay. Same yep. flight attendant crew, but it was a, was it like a passenger plane, just like a regular? Yep. Okay. Yep, just like a regular one. Cool. So and there weren't like poker tables and and, and no bars poker tables, and... <laughs> but but they divide it where you never have to sit next to anybody. So there's always like a window and aisle, window and aisle. Um, who were the big uh, Who were the big stars for the Bears at that time? Um, so Brian Urlacher was definitely the biggest yeah. star. He was a rookie my first year there. Wow. Um, I saw him in an elevator in Chicago one night. Okay. On New Year's Eve. And how was that? It was crazy. We were getting ready to go to a concert. Uh, the concert was dubbed the uh, Black and White Ball. It was an Umphreys McGee concert in Chicago for New Year's Eve. And it was like a black tie. Everybody, you know, dressed up for, did the black tie thing. Well, we took it a different route. And we all made zebra costumes as, as our black and white ball uh, deal. So we're, we, we finish our zebra costumes up in the hotel room. Um, at, I forget the name of the hotel. Somewhere on the Magnificent Mile or, or nearby. And uh, we all, I think there were 11 or 12 of us all dressed like zebras with stuffed zebra heads and, and black and white costumes on. We get on the elevator to go downstairs. We're staying on the top floor. We stop. And Brian Arlocker gets on the elevator by himself <laughs> with a dozen people dressed like zebras. Nice. And uh, and I'm like, I know, how do I know this dude? Like, he's so familiar looking. Like... I, I've seen this guy my whole life and I can't put, put a name to it or whatever. 
And then we get down to the bottom and uh, the doors open and uh, he talked to a couple of us, but but my buddy just looks back at him and he's like, you are a badass and I love you. <laughs> and he was like, thanks, man. And I was like, that's Brian Erlocker, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yep. it is. I, I will say watching him play from the field was uh, mesmerizing. Really? Uh, his nose for the football was amazing to see. Um, but he also accused me of being a liar once. Why? Um, on a plane. The chaplain? So, you're going to yeah, yeah. accuse the chaplain of being a liar? He, he did. He I did. I, um, I ran the uh, Chicago Marathon, which was like my second or third marathon. And I had pretty good time. And yeah. we had talked about it. And uh, he comes up with a newspaper article that has everybody's names and times. And somehow my name and time was not in the Chicago Tribune. He was fact-checking the chaplain? Like, yeah. He's like, your name's not on here. So I had to go find uh, the other paper and show him that my name was on there to prove it. I'd run the marathon. Did he buy it after you he, showed that to him? Okay, man, God, a little, a little sketchy, man. You can't <laughs> yeah. be, you can't be second guessing the chaplain, <laughs> right? Yeah. Did he show up at any of your Bible studies? He did. Yeah. Oh, good. Yep. Okay. So, what years are, are this? Two, you said two thousand to two thousand three. Two thousand, two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. So I'm basically thirty to thirty three at that point. And then back to China. And then back to China. So you had two kids when you were in Chicago. Two more kids when you were in Chicago. Uh, in Chicago. Two more. Yep. Yeah, well, boys, and, uh, boys, all That's boys. Crazy. So, all boys. And then you said, "Let's get back." I, I'm a, I'm a learned man now. I, I know a little bit more. I, I loved living in China. I thought that would live there the rest of my life. Really? It, uh, it is the Wild West to me. You said which, Shanghai. Yeah, in Shanghai. Both times. Yeah. You, okay. Um, and um, and I've traveled to a lot of other parts in China and enjoyed them, but Shanghai had a, it's such a unique city. Really? Uh, yeah. So, but Christianity is illegal. It's Christianity is not illegal. Um, it's very controlled. Okay. So as Just far like as as far everything? as leadership goes, yeah. Okay. How did you find that? Um, I mean, obviously, we feel, whether we think we are or not, we're very free here. Did Did you see? It? <laughs> I think we are. Maybe we're not. But did you Did you see a, a difference in like personal freedoms when you were there? Um, you know. <clears throat> Yes and no. So I, I remember the first time that, um, so the very first cell phone that I had, I bought when I was in China. And I remember landing, flying from Shanghai to Beijing. And I landed and I turned my phone back on and the phone said, welcome to Beijing. And I was like, oh my goodness, they know where I am. Wow. And then I realized now that our phones follow us everywhere and know everything that we do. <laughs> they were just and upfront about everyone's it. Everyone's <laughs> watching. Yeah, they were just more open about it. Yeah. So I, I do th- I, I do think it's almost an illusion how much freedom we have and don't have. That said, what is happening in certain parts of China right now, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, other yeah. places is 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 terrible and uh Yeah, so the the Hong Kong thing was not supposed to happen. That was, uh, it was not supposed to happen for another twenty five years. So right. So so that was a deal with the British, right? That it could come back under Chinese control, but they had to kind of somewhat keep some. They would sort they would of... they would be one one state, two parties basically, and allow for fifty years for Hong Kong to self govern, even though they were part of China. So they and and then and then China just called called them and called them on the on the note. They did <laughs> and and said sorry. They did, yeah. So. Yeah, that's a that's that's a bummer, especially with what happened. I think with from what little I heard, I heard about it. You know, it, it kind of went away overnight. I mean, you could be arrested for having a, a an opposition flag in your backpack. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> protesting was out the window. No more of that. You know, that's that's kind of nuts. And and I I think that taught me a lot about Hong Kong to begin with that I didn't know about. I mean, I I knew at some point it was part of the British 
empire, but I didn't, I didn't realize that there was a, a finite amount of time that it was going to come yeah. back under Chinese rule like that. Yeah, I actually, so um, I think 1832 is the year that the British basically take Hong Kong from China. Mm -hmm. They called it a concession. Um, and then they ruled it until 1992, I think, Yeah, is when the turnover was. Um, but I got to go to it. I got to visit Hong Kong while it was still a British colony and then afterwards. Yeah. Um, and it was still a great place afterwards. But I think, really? I think right now speech against certain things is just very prohibited yeah it seems kind of crazy to just have that stuff go yeah. away overnight especially if you you know you're a teenager or or, or even in your 20s you know yep. and have lived a certain way your whole life and now it's all kind of changed yep yeah well you know it it, it still seems like you ha look at that uh that part of the world fondly and i do i would love to go back i've um i think 2011 was the last time i was there okay um, and, so. and was that just visiting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. How did the, um, how did the second, how did the second, uh, trip round out? As far as the, the four years? Ne the, yeah. The second time, the second time you were, oh, was, you were living over it, there. It was, was fantastic. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I got to do it, something I loved and that was run an art gallery with a Chinese curator and just create a space for people to come in and, uh, see beautiful things, provocative things. Um, was that was that odd for the time and the place to to have? It, it was progressive for sure. Was it progressive? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so were were you this were you this white Westerner who was doing something you know crazy out of, out of left field that people were coming to see, or were you more behind behind the scenes? More more behind the scenes. Okay. So um, the the curator uh, of the art gallery was kind of our face person, and she's a professor. Um, she's from China. Um, and she's a professor at Shanghai University, and uh, and then most of our staff was Chinese, and I was just more creating ambiance space. That's cool. Uh, yeah, and trying to find the funding to run an art gallery. So how'd you do? Where, where do you do that? How do you how do you find money to to do that? Selling um, art or well, some selling art, but the primary form was there was a businessman in Kansas City who sells kitsch stuff at Hallmark store Hallmark stores, and he he manufactures in China. And he he loves what he does, but he also wanted to be a part of like real art, and so he was willing to uh, provide a lot of funding for the gallery. Okay, yeah, a, a lot of you know what I think when I think of a lot of my perception when I think of creation in China is you know stuff that's done very efficiently and makes you know good money, but it's kind of turn and burn kind of stuff. Do they value? Do they value art um, as much as a, a Western culture might? Or are they more about creating stuff that helps the state? So that's a complicated question. They the 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 history of Chinese art is deep and long. Yes. So so yes, they they value art, but in the modern era, by modern, I would say nineteen forty nine on, um, to be stripped from the Ability to purchase art and art becoming more propaganda than mm. than both uh, beautiful as well as useful. Um, it's there's a conflict there. Okay, so was what this professor from Shanghai University that was that was curating with you was that um, was that was that person doing a, a progressive thing? For, oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. So this thing, this kind of 
exhibition wasn't being done other places uh, as much? In the district we were in, it was growing. So there was a specific art district. But outside that district, no. Um, but I would say Beijing had its own art scene. Um, Chengdu, other cities did. Yeah. Um, but they were basically pockets. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> it's, it's outrageous, man. Yeah. No, it was fantastic. Yeah. So, and the cool part is that, so you, um, culture is very sensitive in China. Like they under, the Chinese government understands that culture is a mentor. Like it, it will shape the way people see the world. Mm. So they control it. Mm. So as an art gallery, we had to have a license in order to show art, like a special stamp to show art. Did it give um, you license to show whatever you wanted, or did uh, that still have to be approved? Still had to be approved. So, wow. Um, it didn't have to be approved case by case, but they would come in occasionally and shut something down. Inspectors? Say, hey, uh, just type. local people from the district, mm. officials, would say, hey, this got, this has to go away. Mm. Um, and we would say, okay, it goes For away. what reasons would they say uh, it needed to go away? So the main one was uh, Mao's image was a big one. Mm. So a lot, a lot of artists in China like to use Mao's image to talk about the irony in their society. Yeah. Um, but use of his image is very curated and very purposeful. And so if you if you use it in a, a way that they don't approve of it, it comes down. What 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 way would that be? Like um, how do people ir- ironically portray Chairman Mao? Uh, so maybe he's climbing Mount Everest. Uh, maybe okay. he's walking across the Sahara Desert. Okay. Um, maybe he's eating at McDonald's. Like a painting of them, okay. just all you know that that idea of commercialism meeting communism together. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so, cool. So where'd you go after China? You told me Seattle, <clears throat> right? No, that was before. So after China, um, get my timeline all. No, turned this is around. that's what brought me to Tennessee. Yeah. So my um, uh, my first ex-wife, wonderful woman, is from Franklin, Tennessee. Okay, and as we were struggling with what we were struggling with, three boys, she said, "I want to move home," and so. We moved to Franklin, Tennessee, and we uh, fought it out together for another year and then divorced. Was Franklin, what year is this? Uh, this is 2007. Okay. So Franklin's not necessarily what it is now, but it's starting to hit a little bit of a growth spurt. Yeah. No, Franklin is always, Franklin's Franklin. Really? So at this point, yeah, it's not what it is now, but it was it. Was it. I lasted there a year, and then when we split ways, <clears throat> I moved into Nashville. Uh, okay. Just because it was a much better fit for me. Okay. What were you uh, doing in Franklin? Uh, that's where I went through a job transition from running the art gallery to contract furnishings. Okay, cool. So um, The big transition? Is the, that the biggest the, one you've gone through? That's not no, the biggest no, one you've not, gone through. It's not the biggest. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then went to Nashville doing the furniture furnishings? Uh, yeah. So for three years, um, I sold in Nashville. It was the first time I had to wear a suit, like uh, Nashville at that time, which I think it's changed, but it was a suit town. So... Like, uh, I forget what you call the shoes that you slide on. They're fancy. Loafers. Yeah. I was wearing loafers and a polyester <laughs> suit and a tie. And, Nashville's uh, always seemed like a dress-up town to me, no matter what. Like, even the even the music scene is dress-up. Like, it, it still feels yeah, a little plastic. It, it was. So, I enjoyed being there for the three years. But uh, when I had the opportunity to move to East Tennessee, it just felt like home. Really? Mm-hmm. Even from... Growing up in Miami, living in China, living in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. spending some time in Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. East Tennessee still felt right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I, I love cities, love, I adore yeah. cities, um, but I like, I like the countryside, and I think most I like, um, I like the community. I, I felt like 
when 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 my friends from Miami ask me the same questions or my friends from New York, like, what are you doing in Knoxville? I'm like, it's a very quick place to become at home mm. and to become a part of a community and actually begin to have some leadership in that community. Yeah. And that's refreshing to me. Um that they let you in. Yeah, so. it's 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 you know, it, as I was talking to Tommy Smith about it, like it's a great place to live, but it's kind of like you want to shout from the mountaintops, but you also want to right. <laughs> keep Don't it come. to yourself. Yeah. It's still a very inclusive place. You know, you can, I think of um, Sam Thomas, who produces a show, came here from Atlanta, um, at, at working in the rap, you know, recording industry for 20 years. And now he's one of the most prolific so- location sound men we have in town. Mm-hmm. He's working all the time. And it took him like five minutes to kind of get acclimated yeah. and to become like to become a, a real a real part of both the workforce, but also, you know, the 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 culture in the scene. And it is. um yeah, for, it's it's very welcoming. It's not a, a a judgy or I mean, I guess anywhere can be, but it's a it's it's not somewhere that's just gonna nose up at you just because yeah. you're not well, from here. So I would say that um, to me, Knoxville's honest, which is Seems like which it. I really appreciate that. Um, so that's kind of I know we use the word authenticity, but I think I think it's honest. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I I think you know the fact that there are so many. Um, you know, I would say transient, but not a lot of people leave, <laughs> you know, even the university, you hear so many people, half the people that have been on this show came here to go to college right. and then just stayed because it was great. Um, so there is kind of that, like, come on in, we'll have yeah. you. a little bit of Southern. So, and <laughs> and I do, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for Knoxville in the next 10 years where, uh, and Todd Steed puts it best when he, his song where he talks about Thank God for North Knoxville, a place that still feels like itself. Mm. I think it's going to get harder and harder for Knoxville to feel like itself as it grows. You think? And I do, and I think we need to. I think we need to protect it, not not out of like protectionism, but we need to make sure that we're just constantly spewing out the DNA as as we grow. This is what we are. So as a baseball stadium comes in and the condos mm. come around it. Yeah. Make sure that the DNA is in there of like, hey, this is Knoxville. Yeah. Make sure we're outputting the, yeah. the culture. This as, authentic as, town. Yeah. As we burn whatever. Is, yep. <laughs> exhaust so. the culture. Oh, that's that's good. Um, so, you said two thousand. What year are you here then? Eleven. Nashville? Eleven. Okay, yeah. So you've been here a decade. Yep. Sounds like about longer than you've been anywhere but Miami. <laughs> Uh, it's probably pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Um, but I think I've lived, I've counted, I've lived seven places since I've been in Knoxville. So, and, and it doesn't I'm, sound like you, it, you've lived seven houses since seven, you've been in Knoxville? Yeah, I'm okay. kind of tired of it, but yeah, seven. Keep moving? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> what's, what's wrong? You can't find the right spot? <laughs> no, I like them all. You like them? <laughs> That's good. I mean, I'll take that as, yeah. as a reason. How'd you get a... So when you got here, you're doing the furniture stuff, but uh-huh. at some point you got hooked up with, with, with the farm. Uh, well, the farm was why I came, but, right? But I, I actually I think more pertinent to, to our conversation was um, when I started coming here. Um, my my boss, who won't listen to this podcast, my former boss who I went to high school with, was kind of a cheapskate. So he had me stay at his partner's house. Okay. So instead of a hotel, I was coming. I was coming from 2008 and like once a month was in Knoxville for two or three days. Oh, uh, you were commuting would, from Nashville and working for a few days? Yeah. And so I was staying in uh, his partner's house. Okay. And a good friend of mine who's an architect and I started hanging out and he's like, why don't you just crash at my 
couch downtown since you're downtown all the time. I was like, sure. So uh, John Sanders and I became very good friends. Um, John Sanders from Sanders Pace. And yeah. he would walk me around downtown and show me the architecture of downtown. And he would tell me the history of each building. Wow. And I fell in love with Knoxville through his eyes. Really? When he talked about buildings that, oh, I would love to see this thing here, or I would never touch that building there. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I fell in love with this place, walking the streets at night with him. How'd you, um, how'd you hook up with him? Well, he was one of the architects that was using the furniture products that I provided. Okay. Um, and so we just became, became friends through that. <laughs> You guys so, still still close? Absolutely. Yep. So how long did the furniture thing go on once, uh, you, once you fell in love with the bones of Knoxville? Well, so 11 years altogether, but uh, I guess that was seven or eight years in Knoxville. Um, and then uh, the opportunity with Bluen came up, and I couldn't say no to this opportunity to try something that was a fantastic idea and a wonderful venture that burned and failed so greatly yeah i hadn't we hadn't talked about on this podcast the 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 rise and fall or the you know because it's changed ever since this podcast started two years ago like yeah you know joe fox i grew up with with him we both worked at lenny's uh sub shop back in okay. high school and we were we were buddies back then and so and we've always kept in touch and um when when blue and started it came out of the gate hot uh, we came out of the gate very hot. They had a, a fantastic idea, a great brand. Um, immediately, we had people saying, we want to invest in you. We want to invest in you. We want to buy you. So this and, is right after, like, probably just after Colorado and Washington had legalized recreational marijuana. Yep. And so is the idea that you start these, that this ripple is going to continue to happen across the United States and let's go ahead and start making making non-alcoholic beer so when they leave, so when prohibition ends we're we're ready to 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 create or or we're, we already have everything in place to start making the real stuff is that that's that's part of it um i mean i think there for us there was a true belief that non-psychoactive cannabis has value gotcha um that as medicine and like and seeing the studies come on as things open up, hoping like, oh, now the FDA is going to start studying this and teaching doctors how to use it and how to prescribe it. Like and, CBD specifically? Um, CBD just being the dominant strain in that cannabis, but non-psychoactive being you don't get high. It doesn't have the THC. Right. Um, but also knowing that THC has value um, for, for medical and recreational purposes and like being in a position to, you know, service Tennessee for that. And so um, there were a lot of hints that like, hey, things were heading this way. Hmm. Um, and the mainly the FDA just dragged their feet and never moved on it, which meant that the, the important studies of a plant and how it can be used um, in the human body just weren't being done. Um, uh, weren't being researched because it was illegal? Yeah, yeah. So like the University of Tennessee can't research it. Really? They can research how to grow the crop, but they can't actually send their people to research like here's how the crop might be medically useful mm. um so like e even like, non-psychoactive versions of it uh even non-psychoactive versions because the oh. fda has been so fuzzy on it so wishy-washy um, on their regulations mm -hmm. so how come so many places have been have been able to um proliferate you know both right. um psychoactive and non-psychoactive versions of 
cannabis. I mean, I think the the psychoactive version is obvious. If it becomes, you know, even medically legal somewhere, I, I would think that the state would um, would say it's okay to study it. But I guess it's not up to the state at some point. It's right. Still federally illegal. Yep. Okay. So, but Bluen's biggest challenge was um, the, the biggest challenge is that we we had an investor that we turned away three or four times that came to us and said, "Please get big. We want to give you." And I was at the table with Joe. We want to give you $60 million and want to own slightly less than half your business. And we said yes at that point. Um, and then they backed out mm. um, after, you know, eight to 10 months through that. And so losing that investment, all of a sudden we realized we had gotten big to 62 employees from four to 62 employees in about four to six months. Yeah. And realized that some hard choices had to be made. And then the market wasn't opening up and then COVID hit. And, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it seemed like you guys had some steam. So you were the, you were the first hire other, or you were, it was Joe and then you, uh, no. So it was Joe, Eric Meltzer and, uh, Cody, uh, seals. Okay. They were the, they were, they were the three kind of stockholders. Were you the four guys in the picture? We were, yep. Yep. Standing, Standing in, 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 the fin- in Fincher's County in the middle of the hemp field, which was a trip. Cause <laughs> I, I don't have much background in cannabis, but standing in that field and smelling those smells was, uh, <laughs> and looking at this crop was just amazing. So what, what made you feel like it was a, a challenge that you could take on not having experience with, with growing cannabis? Um, I think that one, I like learning things fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like adventure and experiences and it was all that. So, um, and I, you know, just with, confident too. With, yeah. <laughs> some hopefully proper to confidence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no, absolutely. I mean, I studied about the crop, learned about it, um, talked to farmers who had grown before about it. And so really got a lot of background in it and, uh, and then talked to a few medical professionals who understood what was emerging with, um, mm. with CBD, with cannabidiol, you know, as the, the primary uh, cannabinoid and cannabis there, what it was doing for folks. Um, so I still have a good friend who's, uh, whose mother's going through chemotherapy right now. And one of the things that has at least been studies is that it's good for nausea mm. um, as people go through uh, chemotherapy. So she's yeah. going to be able to take a gel cap um, that will hopefully, you know, help her, you know, deal with her nausea as she goes through, you know, how many ever months of chemotherapy. Yeah. That's, I mean, is that, is that not a noble cause? Can, is that not good enough? To I like, think it's a great cause. <laughs> I think it is yep. too. Absolutely. So were you guys, I, cause I still, I, I really don't understand a lot about Bloom and I don't know a lot about it. I know about the storefront. Okay. I know about the huge sponsorship of Rhythm and Blooms. Right. Um, so what's awesome. So the storefront was never supposed to happen. Really? That, that was, uh, yeah, that was the choice that was made. But originally we were going to be a processor. That was the goal. So, which is okay. kind of cool. Like we were going to work with farmers, source our own material, we're going to provide seeds, tell them how to grow it fertilizer-wise, um, and then we're going to take their material and we we're going to process it. And we had a processor so that we ran basically a, a wash that would wash all the cannabinoid material off that plant, and then it would go to science from there. And the science was basically identifying the cannabinoids in there and putting it into a tincture or a soft gel um, or something like that. And... Uh, and we accomplished it. Um, so you guys outfitted a lab? An entire lab. That was, uh, yeah, we spent about uh, $6 million on outfitting a lab. 
Amazing. So, so, so you had these farmers. Were you the one going and, and selling them on the idea and probably I, trying to convince them that they weren't going to go to jail for yeah, doing it? Yeah. No, I was out there convincing them that, hey, I think you should give this crop a chance and uh, and then giving them a guidebook on how to, to grow the crop. Interesting. Did you did you check back up on them and, and do some like consultation and all that as uh, they were growing Absolutely. It? For a year we did. It was fantastic. And, it, and that's... It's actually one of the hardest parts about what I experienced from that is that we, after they grew that crop, when blue and failed, we no longer had a place to take their crop. Mm. Um, oh, is that? And yeah. Yeah. So that makes was, you feel a little guilty for. Uh, I, I, to be honest, guilt is not the word I would use. Okay. Pain. Really? Um, yeah. I, I told, we told no lies. Um, you didn't know they were lies. No, we, we, we didn't. And, uh, but pain, just like knowing that they are going through this thing. Um, so they have and, a bunch of, of product that they don't have anywhere to go with. Exactly. What, what happened to a lot of that crop? Did it just get turned over or burned or, uh, or? so a, a good number of the farmers found another place for it. Good. Uh, but most of them probably just threw it away. Yeah. Um, so, so then this, this lab that you guys built, I mean, did you ground up? You guys are, are, are learning about this stuff on the flyer. Do you hire people from other places uh, or? No, that's, so Joe is great at identifying like talent with yeah. people. And so we, we hired chemists from other places and some, I missed it. I love being around the science. Really? Um, oh, so amazing. The science is, is, I mean, it's magical. Um, in, in in the sci- science, when you say science, uh, that was a department, I guess, of Blue In. So it went from yeah. Like- so our chemists, they basically distill the product, yeah, um, and goes through a whole. You know, depending on how where they want to take it through, um, they just do a lot of scientific things with temperature and heat and gas and um, other like things, extraction and getting it to a usable usable spot. Yep. So what were what were the benefits at the time that you that that you could see coming from non psychoactive cannabis that you thought was going to hit in the marketplace? So, uh, inflammation is a big one. Yeah, um, which I think we all deal with inflammation. Sure, and it's one of the number one things that you know our joints just you know deal with with inflammation. So the second was nausea. Yeah, um, is nausea like proven? I, I know that 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 um, inflammation is right. Yeah. And, it, and nausea is, is as well. Scientifically, <clears throat> both yeah. of them are scientifically yep. proven yep. to be alleviated with use of CBD or yeah. cannabis. And then the third, which is a little different than the psychoactive version, is um, dealing with anxiety. Yeah. Um, you know, some folks with the psychoactive version, it helps their anxiety, and some folks it doesn't. Goes the other way. Um, but that was another like prominent use. And, and you guys, you weren't necessarily trying to go to end users, though, were you? Or were you trying to, to fill dispensaries with, with this product that you guys were? Uh, or, or The original plan was to sell bulk so that somebody else could turn it into their own product. So gotcha. we, we would sell them the, the bulk material. So like tincture yes, at that point? Yes, exactly. Okay. But no um, flour? Uh, flour was always a part of it. So okay. yeah. Um, Eric, who now has a flour facility in Maynardville, um, that was always an important thing for him. Really? Yep. Okay. So And he grows some quality flour. I don't use it myself, but... All the feedback that he gets is very, very positive. Okay, yeah, I, I remember being at the at the Rhythm and Blooms uh, deal and seeing the big the big blue and lounge over there, yeah. and just seeing big crystally flowered flowering <laughs> marijuana. Well, I, I think that the like the the mindset of the team at that point was um, 
like this thing, almost like prohibition, this like, let's just show people this is a norm, right. you know, the same way that you and I would have a beer or a liquor drink, right? Like if these things are legal, um, or an opioid for dealing with pain, sure, sure. um, let's, let's shock them and say, Hey, you know, this is normal yeah, and healthier. And, and at this point, is, is this where the, the investor that wouldn't go, <laughs> were they still, was that all still alive and good at that point? Yeah, yeah. No, they were okay. loving it. That that investor, um, I mean, ended up being a speculator of sorts. And since mm. th- they ran out of money, they they had about $50 million of their own money. And they were trying to gobble up a bunch of smaller companies and create a package sure. that they could go, you know, uh, take onto the stock market. Yeah. Um, and so, they just, they bet wrong. Yeah. So, so you, so blue and wasn't the only, wasn't the only group that, that probably, um, got hurt by this. No, there were six or seven others that also did. So. Okay. And, and you think it's just because the push didn't happen as quickly as it was supposed to? Uh, I, I mean, I think the FDA push was a big part of it. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. It was, just like anything, like uh, I was reading today about uh, what do you call the the alcoholic drinks that everyone's drinking now that has seltzers. No seltzers. Yeah. So seltzers all of a sudden hit their ceiling. So mm. and truly apparently had to destroy like fifty percent of their inventory because it's it's just oversaturated. Yeah, the bubble so burst for they, them. Too. They just bet too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I feel like a lot of it is some folks just betting too much. Gotcha. It's dangerous. People get excited about stuff. I mean, they you do. see it with <laughs> you see it with cryptocurrency. Yeah. You see it with just about everything, and people ride the wave. Yep. But then there's very real implications when when it doesn't pan out, or when Absolutely. the when, when the when the high water mark is hit and things start to recede a little bit. Um, and that was you know this all happened within the last like year and a half, right? It did. Yeah. I mean, really, for us. Um, yeah, once COVID hit on, we we had already gone through a, a a huge retraction right before COVID. The Thanksgiving of right. 2019 um, was a hard time, really, and um, and we slimmed down. But then once uh, March came along, it was it was done. Yeah. So so, so you said the uh, the the storefront was not a uh, was not um, part of the plan. How did it become? How did it become? Um, part of the thing is that something the investors wanted the investors wanted yeah they really wanted a like a physical presence they loved the brand yeah the brand's great it. yep and the store was great i don't know if you got to go into the storefront it was incredibly designed did you get um, to work on some of the furnishings for it i did did you I, really I picked them all yeah it's oh, great uh, you picked you didn't get to build them this time around no man look at you yeah. <laughs> boss hog <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm pretty proud of what i did so that's awesome so so then where where'd you go next um, so that's a great question. So I, um, here, <laughs> I, no. So I went through a little bit of a scrape and, um, I decided to go to work for the U S census bureau as a numerator. What's um, that? So a numerator, is that a door to door person? It's a door to door person. So at the end of the census in 2020, um, numerators were sent out to find people who did not return the census. Gotcha. And so I worked, uh, uh, Sevier County, uh, Tallahassee, Tennessee, and they sent me up to uh, Harlan, uh, Kentucky, yeah. to go knock on doors. Oh, wow. And yeah, that's a federal job, so you're not just in the state. Yeah, right? and I was, I was a U.S. Census Bureau worker, and I would have to go down a little holler, um, get out of my truck, 
and I'd have to have my U.S. Census shirt on and go knock on a door and step off the porch and say, hey, I'm here from the U.S. government. <laughs> I bet that was fun. <laughs> and I know you didn't want to fill the census out, but I think it's a really good idea if you do. What time of so, year is this? Uh, this was uh, August, uh, September, and October of 2020. So right in the thick of election season. Right in the thick of election season. Yeah. Uh, so what worked to my advantage is that I drive a truck. Yeah. And I have long hair and a beard. Yeah. Um, and I just knocked on the door and it's like, hey, I'm here from the U.S. government to take your census. And um, before they could close the door, uh, I will say that 95% of the people were fantastic. Okay. And I would say, here's why it's important. You're paying tax dollars. Somebody in New York is going to claim those tax dollars unless we fill out the census and tell them who lives here so we know what to put into roads, schools, hospitals. And they're like, okay, I'll give you answers. And uh, 95% of the people. Yep. We're good. We're, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Because that's a, a very sound argument, sir. I would, I, I would, I would fill it out. Yeah. If you, if you, if you hit me with that on my front so, porch. So what about that 5%? <laughs> well, uh, I got bit by a dog. Okay. Um, that, I, I would expect that would that, be an occupational That hazard. was painful. Yeah. I think 26% of injuries for U.S. census workers are dog bites. Were you okay? Did you get infected or anything? No infected. I just went to the, uh, the local pharmacy. I was actually in uh, Barberville, Kentucky when that happened. And I went to a local pharmacy and they gave me some peroxide and I poured it on there and I went back to work. Love so, it. But it hurt so bad. Was that the worst that happened? Did you get shot at or anything? Um, I did not get shot at. I mean, I got told to leave a couple places, but it, it's odd. The The folks who told me to leave several places were some of the more affluent folks. Who really? They were. Okay. Um, so why didn't they fill out their census then? Uh, don't trust the government? Don't trust the government. They were feared. Yeah. So, What about um, like... Um, what about undocumented folks? Um, so that was a trip. They were very hesitant. I would have to typically, um, I was very sensitive to it, and I would typically have to knock on the door three or four times yeah, um, and say, it's safe. I can't, I'm only here for the census. Like there's no, nothing I can turn in for you. And typically it was one of their children that spoke English that I would do the interview through. Mm. Um, Did, oh man, that's got to be tough. It was hard. Yeah, it was hard to see because they're, I mean, it's clear they were um, hardworking, industrious people who didn't want someone like me knocking on their door. Yeah, especially the climate at the time was tough. Exactly, they weren't exactly being welcomed with open arms. Seemingly, I mean, that's what yep. you, that's if I'm I'm sure that was the feeling. Yep. Um, no, all the I DACA think, stuff and all uh, that. Yeah, all the ICE raids were up more, yeah. and so um, it was tough. I, I mean, I had I felt a lot of compassion. Good. Um, and I was glad that I got to count them and tell them, hey. You're counted. You're you're living here. That's and, awesome. And you're counted. So, did they? Did they? Did anybody get any kind of pride from that? Uh, not I really. Don't know. I, don't, I, mean, I enjoy talking to the children. Really? So, yeah. How, so, how? What percentage would you say came to the door of, of when you knocked? Uh, zero percent until I knocked three times. Okay. So, 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 w- w- was it obvious that there were? Yeah, there's always there people there. The shoes were outside. Yeah, um, cars were parked there. Um, and you have balls of steel, so, man. Just uh, well, just and to... and my caseworker told me like you had to report, and they're like you got to keep knocking. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. So God, yeah, you've got to, you've got so much faith. I can already tell. <laughs> I I will say I was afraid every time I went to a door. Were you really? I was. So why'd you do it then? Like, what did did you feel like um, you were doing a duty to your country or to the the individuals? Uh, who who lived there? What did you? Um, what drove you to do it? So I needed the income. 
one. Okay. Uh, two, I do feel like I was doing a duty to both that individual and to our society. Yeah. Our collect the collective us. Gotcha. So I did it. And, you know, if I could go talk to someone about bluing and pitch for $30 million or $60 million, I can go knock on a door and <laughs> ask to ask some information about your household information. So I can do that. Um, but that was during the whole process when Joe actually uh, came to me and said, Hey, I think you should do commercial real estate. And, uh, so your, your, your former blue and, uh, uh, CEO yeah. said, I think you could join my real estate company. Yeah. Which he, you know, he's not an, he's not an active member of, I mean, he is, he's an active member of the leadership, but he's not actively doing real estate himself right now. And so Tyler Fogarty is who I work with most yeah. and uh, a great team and they all do residential and I know commercial buildings. So it kind of fit. Because of your furnishing background? Uh, furnishing and actually because of the art background before that, because most of our clients were architects and designers. Okay. Um, but I know how buildings go together and um, I've actually, I think it paid for about eight months, but starting in July, I've had a very lucrative year. Yeah. So real estate is one of those things where it, it's, um, it's up to you, right? Oh, it's all up to you. Your whole schedule. <laughs> no, it's crazy. Which is the best part and the worst. You part. could sleep until two p.m. or you can get up at six a.m. and it's it's really all up to you figuring it out. Yeah, so. and and if and it's very uh, merit merit based. If you know, yeah, it's, it's very clear to see who succeeds and who doesn't. Well, and like you you and I already talked about um, with John Phillips. So I helped some investors buy a building um, right across from Old Gray, and it's an incredible old uh toyota uh what do you call those things uh forklift forklift shop yeah and phillips forge is going there now and he's he's working through the remodel right now and so it was great to help these people buy this building but then to find a great use for it okay so you found them a tenant or you sold it to a man found him a tenant i sold it to the investors and then found uh john phillips to go in there and i knew it was perfect for john phillips i mean i wished it was and it was really um yeah especially if you think about that area so it's over by uh, where Paison and remedy are Uh so you have mighty mud and you have ironwood studios and you have have all this great maker energy yeah and so excited about him going in there so cool yeah because when he was here which not too long ago but he was He's been making knives in the backyard of his house forever, and yep. and he, I think, uh, a couple of days ago, he he uh, uh, had an Instagram post that shows his knives are the cover of the uh, yeah, Blackberry catalog. Pretty amazing. Yep. <laughs> and what a like, what an East Tennessee maker that is that is making a like stuff that nobody uh, that that you don't see a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, but B, it's like it's punching on a real level, uh, yeah. As far as art is concerned, um, but also as far as being a commercially successful product is yeah. concerned too. I, I would say those two things, like being a commercially successful product, but also being a true artist, right? Like, to be able to combine those things is pretty awesome to see. It couldn't happen to a better dude. Yep, <laughs> agreed. So, so how's this real estate stuff going for you? You said eight months of yeah, <laughs> wishing no you're pack. still yeah, a yeah. census worker. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I ran a little foul of the law because of that. I, I pay child support in the state of Massachusetts and uh, got a little behind. Oh yeah, for so eight months of of not for not being paid. But yeah. I um, I represented myself in court and 
got all caught up about three months ago, which was fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, nope, it was fantastic. It was right. And uh, so I was glad to, to, to do that. And real estate has been, I mean, like to be able to make some money, but also to do something that's fulfilling is really important to me. Dude, so. I, I don't understand how you keep a positive attitude <laughs> and so much uh, just like so much faith and confidence with with what you've with all that dude eight months of of not being paid and then your point running afoul of the law like i would feel awful about myself um i I cried after every court appointment on zoom did you i did oh pandemic so you're on you're on zoom Zoom, yeah oh man was there self-loathing involved no 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 i I wasn't hiding anything so there was no self-loathing it was just like i gotta figure out how to catch up really yeah and then you said i'm i'm just gonna buckle down and do it yeah, just and so the other thing I do now, I have, I have a little side hustle with the public building authority, which has actually been really fulfilling to me. So, um, the public building building authority controls every building in the city of and county of for Knoxville. So, city of Knoxville, Knox County. What do you mean they control it? They they're in charge of the real estate, the development, the management of those buildings. So right now, the East TVA Tower. So if you're on yeah. Market Square, the tower that's to the east. It's okay. going to be Knox County Schools, uh, floors two through six, and University of Tennessee, floors eight through 12. Wow. And um, I had done work previously with um, the Public Building Authority, and they came and said, hey, would you want to manage some projects for us? And I was like, sure, I've got some time. And so they basically call me or email me once a week and say, hey, are you available at this time? And for four hours, and so I work on an hourly rate for them, which is a a wonderful thing to do and I'm just like I'm available and I've done everything from pull fiber optic to put appliances on floors get furniture into the building um, so, so it's been really fulfilling so you're their their liaison to the space the PBAs I'm, liaison to I'm the space? one of their liaisons yeah they, they have some main liaisons so they'll have subcontractors coming in and you're kind of exactly so yeah when, when, they're, the when, the when they're overwhelmed um, wow they call me and so and that's been another like fulfilling as well as uh, help me get out of some holes so What's on the seventh floor? Nothing yet, which is awesome. <laughs> the construction office is on the seventh floor. Okay. So I'm glad you caught that. So <laughs> it's it's weird because the floors are being built out below and above, and the seventh is just like a concrete shell. Really? Yep. Just right there? So yeah, I mean, yep. I'd be on the 12th floor in no time yep. flat. And I don't know if it's going to be UTs or Knox County Schools or who's. So. What's, uh, so TVA is moving out of both of those buildings? No, TVA is going to stay in the West Tower. Okay. So they've actually not occupied that East Tower for like six to 10 years. Really? So just the, the, uh, alarm system, fire alarm just goes off like once a week. Or yeah. Something all like the time. That. No, it's a complicated project. It's a federally owned building being leased to the public building authority <laughs> to the university of Tennessee and Knox County schools. Yeah. That sounds like a hell of a lot of yeah. red tape. It's right? a lot of red tape. <laughs> so what about the, uh, uh, the Knoxville TVA employees credit union building? So on Wall Avenue. Yeah, so that's going to be um so that was a uh, I believe Thomas Boyd is who purchased it. Okay. And it's going to be a mixed use space between like some uh retail and I think some condos in there is or no, boutique hotel. Boutique hotel, retail and restaurant going in there. So it has a, it has a great atrium if you've walked in there before and like I have, totally yeah. underutilized. So it's going to be yeah. fantastic. Yeah, my parents are up in uh Lerner, so that's right across yeah. the, the the street. We need another Need need another uh, 
spot right there. I mean, a, a credit union was a great use of that space, I guess. But and offices, right? There's right. A ton of offices. But they have been closed for. I mean, they're you know, if you think about the models when they did that building, like they've shrunk so much since then. Well, they moved out to that school. Yep. The, on Portland Avenue or whatever, which is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen that place. I've not seen it. No. It's super cool. And now they moved the whole credit union operation to um, like Hardin Valley Lovell Road area in okay. this huge complex over there. So they're slowly kind of, they sold the building. Like you said, how, do you know how much it sold for? Uh, I don't offhand, no. Man, that's such a yeah. prime piece of it is a, a real piece. estate. Yes, right absolutely. There. Um, and that's going to be right next to the right next to Knox County Schools in the UT yeah. Tower at TVA. All right, so I, I I've got this is like crystal ball time. So okay. so, um, we've got very few like huge tenants like a Regal or like a Discovery. Discovery. So, my business obviously we rely a lot on what happens at discovery networks and um we you know we make a lot of content for for a lot of their different uh properties like hgtv diy travel channel magnolia we make a, a you know a, a lot of our yearly work is is done through them and and i wonder like did discovery acquire scripts for a piece of real estate in knoxville tennessee like people are working from home now is is how important is that campus off of I-40? And if, God forbid for me and everybody else who, you know, works in some kind of contractor ancillary role for, for the Discovery Networks in Knoxville, what is what happens to that building if they leave or work from home for the rest of their lives? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so I think one example we can look at is where uh, goodies used to be. And, okay. and it's now like South College yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh-huh. uh, Kimberly Clark. Yeah, so, rough like Parkside Drive. Yeah, so that's an example of a large business that vacated. Yeah, that went to thank another you. Use. I needed I needed um, that the uh, parallel. A, a bad example might be uh, East Town Mall. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do with that building now? So <laughs> I don't know. There's um, not a building uh, there now. <laughs> Regal might be another example when they yeah. were up in is that halls where they were before. I don't know. They were up on uh, way up Broadway, past Fountain City. I think that's Halls. Really, but now, but now they're obviously in the downtown. Uh, yeah, Baptist Hospital. So, and I think about a half of those, the the real campus is no longer one campus anymore. It's a bunch of different buildings, and I think about half of them are occupied. Um, I, I just worry. I, I worry about that because it's a hell of a lot of square footage yeah. over there that could that could you know, really yeah. sit empty for a while if it wasn't careful, because it would take the right, take the right uh, tenant. It it would, especially the old original building. It's really complicated inside because it- At Discovery? Yeah, because the, the before the glass building, mm-hmm. the other brick one that was there, or the whatever it's made out of, it, um, I mean, if you think about how much technology changed in 20 years, mm-hmm. the building is like a hospital where it's like all- cut up in different yeah. pieces and, and work styles changed a lot too i work mean if you go in the, in the new glass building it's all pretty much open and cubes and all that and yeah then, you but know. even that building is 12 years old now yeah so <laughs> is it really i can't believe it. i remember when it was yeah. built 
Yeah, I worked on that building. Did you really? I did did all the. If you ever see the sliding door in there, I did all the glass doors and walls. I think those Um, are those are those are like the uh, director manager level or whatever those offices, and they have like the 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 frosted strip in the middle of them, so you can't see who's in there having a meeting. I did all that work. You can see everybody else. Oh man, well, uh, so what are, are are there any other commercial? buildings in Knoxville I'm forgetting about off the top of my head. I mean, we've got we've got how many food halls coming in? Uh, we have a lot of food halls. So so <laughs> what what excites me currently right now most is um it's commercial but it's not large scale, but it's driving um in North Knoxville, South Knoxville, East Knoxville and looking for properties that are not being used. Mm-hmm. And then figure out who owns the building, figure out how to call them up and say, would you be interested in selling or leasing your building? And then go in and find a tenant for it. Really? And yeah, and that's been fun. I mean, that's, that's kind of how Phillips Forge happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one in, uh, in East Knoxville right now that's about to happen like that, where it's, awesome. just, it's just fun to see, like, this building needs to be put back into use. So, it's a creative job, it seems like, to be able to matchmake in that way. Yeah, it is. To be able to, I don't know, imagine what you know that could look like and mm-hmm. you could be the the thing that made it look that way yeah you know in five in. years ten yep. years you get the right right guy in there right right gal in there and that's super fun i i dig that I, that's and and also like we don't need to build a bunch of new stuff <laughs> brownfield development is yep. very i think important and i don't know a, a Especially right now with, I don't know, I'm sure commercial real estate is crazy too. Like the, it, It's definitely different than residential. Is it really? It is, yeah. It's, so it's, how, how so? Uh, like market-wise it's, it's right just much. It's, it's much steadier, slower. Okay. It's like, like Knoxville well, is always. Good. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, yeah, I couldn't imagine. My, my uh, colleagues in residential, their, their world is insane right now. Yeah, so. I bet. Like you're lucky to be able to even get a listing. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then when they're trying to coach someone like, hey – you're buying this thing. Is it too much? Is it, you know, yeah. what should you do? So, yeah, it seems like we're just kind of repeating some mistakes that <laughs> yeah. led to 2008. Yeah, apparently seemingly. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you've been here 10 years. Did the arrival of Pachacucha and you coincide? Uh, did very, you bring it here? Very, very closely. So I did not bring it here. Okay. Um, I attended the very first one here. Okay. Um, so two friends of mine started it. And uh, when you sign a, a very loose contract with Pachakacha, which is a, a loose organization based out of Tokyo, Japan, you basically say we're going to do four a year. Okay. And um, after their third one, they didn't do one for about eight months. And I reached out to my friend, Ashley Pace, and said, hey, Ashley, um, can I help? And yeah. I knew she had three children under five at the time and is a professional architect. And so I reached out to her and she's like, yeah. And I said, well, let's put together a team because there were two of them doing it then. It's too much. So we put together a team of eight of us and um, our team, uh, the commitment is uh, never long-term. The commitment is life changes. You move on. If life stays stay, you, you stay on. Um, but the commitment is we meet once a month at a bar for one hour and we brainstorm about how to curate this event. Everybody so. gets 20 seconds to, to, <laughs> yeah. to say their piece. So it's been member. great. So we meet at a bar once a month for one hour and we curated this event. And now it's been, we're on our 41st volume. 
Um, and it's been going on for 10 years. So 2011 was the first. Explain it for people who may not be familiar with it, because it's I know what it is, and a lot yeah. of people do, but there may be some people listening who so, don't. So uh, pachakacha is a Japanese word for chit-chat, and it was started by these two Americans, actually, who are architects in Japan. And what they realized is that architects are terrible at telling their stories. They go on way too long. So they said, let's make people not use words, but show images. 20 images, 20 seconds per image, tell your story. And so that's what, really what it is. It's, it's a storytelling town hall where every presenter gets 20 images, uh, 20 seconds per image to tell their story. And it's also a think while you drink event. So, yeah. So these images come up on the screen and then the presenter also speaks while Correct. up on the screen, yep. right? Do people do slides like with PowerPoint kind of written uh, text on screen or is it just more like a photo? Comes occasionally, up? but mostly it's photos. We really encourage photos. So I'm actually presenting at the next Pachacacha. On um, what? I mean, you uh, could the whole thing could be your life, so man. I, I'm going to present. Um, it's November 11th. I that's a great point. I am going to present on uh, 2020, the the age of COVID, and kind of all the things that I went through, including the art that I make. So the art is kind of my response to the world we're living in. What what, what kind of art do you make? You make um, art too. I Did do. You, I'm, I, I feel so, so unaccomplished right no, now. No, <laughs> I um. So I. I have a unique style of painting. My friends know it. And um, yeah, a unique what? Style of painting. Painting. So okay. I paint with a an unsharpened pencil and an expired credit card. Um, and I put layer upon layer upon layer. It sounds then... like how MacGyver breaks into a house or something. <laughs> and then once after putting all those layers on, I decide what I want to do. I'll paint something on top of those layers. So okay, you got to explain it a little bit. So you take the unsharpened pencil. Uh huh. And then what do you, how does the expired credit card come in? To... Uh, there, so the unsharpened pencil makes thinner lines. The, okay. Un, the, the expired credit card makes larger lines. Okay. And they're both connected to my past. Like these are materials that I use oh, purposefully. They mean something. They do. Okay. And, and then after putting all these layers of color on there, because um, I'm just mixing colors and finding colors that I think are interesting, um, I paint something on top of that image. Okay, so, so you make your base with, is it acrylic? It's acrylic, yeah. Okay. So acrylic is great because it dries in 30 to 45 minutes and, you know, can have a, a nice evening instead of waiting for it to dry for days. So Yeah, like oil. Yeah. It takes a while. And so you're, that's what you're... Is that what your uh, your Pachacacha is going to kind of... It's going to have lean, a couple. So I did... Um, lean towards? A, a year ago, I did some uh, self-portraits. I did a series of like No eight. way. Yeah. How and, do you see yourself? Like, what was oh, that? Everyone what, is different. Really? Yeah. What and, was that process like? Like, I, did, did you did you paint a different version of yourself to fit, depending on your psyche at uh, the moment? Absolutely. Like, how you felt about yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, and how I felt about the world. So mm. remember during the same time, so COVID's going on and we're isolated. And then the race, racial reconciliation, which happened but never happened, is also yeah. going on. And so I was painting those feelings of alienation because of COVID and like anger and just frustration with mm. with the state of America. Yeah. And uh, especially our, you know, just our non-reckoning with the racism that is unique to our place. Mm. So, so the self-portraits were kind of just, like me looking into that. How many did you do? I did eight. Eight so, of them? Yep. So are they going to make up eight of the slides? Or are you going to... Uh, no, just three of the slides. Three so, of the slides. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing a... You're doing 20 slides for 20 uh -huh. seconds apiece on uh -huh. 2020. Yep. 
Dude, this is like meta <laughs> meta world going on. Yeah. That's, so. that's in November 11th is when it happens. November 11th at the Millen Mons. Okay. And, and uh, the one that I have been to was outside yep. at Millen Mine. And you said that was that was like a one-off kind of thing? That, that was a one-off that we tried and we loved it. It just, it was so bright that like the first three presenters you couldn't see very well. Because of the projector and yeah. you know, too much ambient light on the yep. screen. Yeah. So now they're inside. Is the... Uh, is the um, is the screen where the stage is? The screen's on the stage, okay. and to me, the Millen Mine has done one of the best jobs during the COVID era of of thinking about how to create safe places. Mm-hmm. So, with the pods outside, uh, they've and... done the pods, and they have uh, lots of air ventilation coming through the bar. Ah. The bars outside, so that when you're waiting in a line, you're outside. Mm. Um, they've been really thoughtful, and then we. Instead of doing all stadium seating, we've done like sections of three to five chairs just so that you can, you're still stadium seating, but you're sitting with whoever you came with. Yeah. That's cool. So, Man, I, that's it's so exciting. Um, it feels like it's become like that Pachacucha has become uh, a, a, a bit of a mouthpiece for our, for our arts scene and entertainment scene, but also creators mm-hmm. um that you may not otherwise know about you know I've, I've, i think the one i was at you saw a guy talking about like remodeling his house or something like yep. that uh, but then you also have like you know i remember uh juliana tullis who i went to yep. who i went to uh, high school with like presenting on 93 the rock 90.3 yeah. the rock yep. and I was, that was so cool absolutely too. so there's like there there's yeah. the kind of no no lines that you have to draw draw within. It just kind of becomes this um, this sounding board or this mouthpiece where you, where you can get the the culture out there uh, that lives here anyway. It's just people may yeah. may not uh, be hip to it yet. It's it's a true town hall, and I will say the the best um, compliment that I received from it came from Jack Neely. Okay, um, and Jack said the two big surprises of him of the last ten years in Knoxville. Have been big ears and Pachakacha. <laughs> and like, speechless. Like you had me at big ears. <laughs> no doubt. But the fact that he would throw Pachakacha in there was um like just astounding. It feels right. It yep. feels like it does the right thing for the right reason. And it it's kind of um I don't feel like there's an ask there. Yep. So we what's awesome is that we have we have never paid for a venue. So we've been at the Well, it's a free event, right? We, it's a free event. And we've it's we've been at the relics, the square room, the mill and mine, uh, the KMA. Mm, wow, we, we've been all the Bijou, and they've never made us pay for like we've always said to them, hey, we want to come, we want to have people buy drinks, but like this is what we do, we pay a cleaning fee, so okay. because there there are true costs, right? Um, but the mill and mine has, has been especially uh, generous because they provide security, right, um, and provide all the support around it. So That's so cool, man. Yep. Man, I'm so glad you uh, stumbled on Knoxville a decade ago. <laughs> Me too. You've made it such a better place. Thank you, Ben. Already. What would we miss? I mean, we could take each section of what we've <laughs> talked about and and do a ten episode series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just I'm 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 so glad to uh, to be in your in your presence. I got to tell you real quick, my my the first time I'd ever heard of you was my dad, and my. 
my dad, like I said, they lived downtown and he, he had a newspaper of some sort. I forget what it was. Are you on a board downtown or something like that? I'm on the downtown Knoxville Alliance. Okay. And that's yeah. like, is that the super board of all the different boards that are like the daylight building and all the residential spaces where everybody comes, kind of sends a Basically, representative, yeah, so a G8 of a... Sort of, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. What's that? What's that like? Or what is that? The downtown um, alliance? Is that just yeah, so everybody's voice is kind of heard? No, it's the central business improvement district. So in the in the nineteen nineties when downtown was still like dead, it was actually started to revive downtown and hmm. uh residents and uh people who own property downtown have to pay an assessment into it. And so we have about nine hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to work with. Okay. And so if you look at the JC Penny building where Babalu is yeah. and Maple, you know, Hall, Mara, Maple Hall. So we provided a facade grant to help pay for that. The nice. Cal Johnson building was the most recent facade grant that we provided. Um, awesome. efforts on Market Square, um, all the planners that you see, um, extra security at night, especially during this time. Yeah. It's, it's been required. So we control that budget and try to make decisions in the best interest of the residents and the businesses downtown. And that's all you, you feel pretty yeah. proud about that work. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's nuts that I'm the chair because it's, it's really a suit and tie type of board. Did you get your Nashville dress up? Right now. So, um, <laughs> and they accept me, which is pretty fantastic. I don't know how you couldn't accept you, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm so proud to know you. And I appreciate you coming by. All right. Well, thank you very much. For real. Thank you for doing this. And uh, maybe we can uh, 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 push some of these buttons in the in the future again. Oh, let's poke. Okay. All right. Let's pull a thread. Yeah. Take care, Matthew. All right, Ben. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. You dizzy? Did you follow that? I tried, man. I tried. I tried to keep it on the rails. And I think I, I got my head around it. I think. Thank you guys for being here. We appreciate you so much. Don't forget to check back next week, the following week, as we count down to our 100th episode, which we're really excited about. Y'all take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you around, all right? Pitchwire. Pitchwire! Play me out. <laughs>